the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, November 11th, 1918. I'm Sally Helm. Dear Marion, the letter begins. It's from a soldier to his sister on the last day of the Great War. He writes, The armistice began at 11 o'clock this morning. We knew the time of the day by the sudden silence. Suddenly, all the guns behind us stopped barking and rolling. The last freight car rattled over our heads, and all the machine guns suddenly stopped, though they had been rioting away up to the very last minute. There was a cold, dense mist in which I suddenly noticed that I could hear water dripping off a bush next to me. World War I is officially over. But to many soldiers on the front lines, the silence feels uncertain, like the shells might begin again any minute. These men have endured weeks or months or years of horrific fighting and carnage. This war brought new weapons, new tactics, and a huge death toll. Soldiers have seen things that they can't unsee. The man who wrote that letter is an army doctor named Stanhope Bain-Jones. You can read his entire letter in the online archives of the historical collections of the U.S. National Library of Medicine. Bain-Jones has been serving in an area east of the Meuse River in France. He joined the army recently in 1915. In these ways, he's typical of the American soldiers who fought in World War I. The country joined the fray late in the game. An army largely made up of quite new soldiers fought a long, deadly battle in northeastern France, in the Meuse River Valley and the Argonne Forest. And that battle helped push the world towards armistice, towards that uncanny moment on a November morning when the machine guns finally fell silent. Today, the battle that ended the First World War did an inexperienced American army help turn the tides? And how did the Meuse-Argonne Offensive change the way America would fight future wars? Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around Black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. The Great War ends on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. And the silence on the front lines is accompanied by cheers and celebration in towns and cities across Europe. But it's also hard to shake the feelings of horror that the Great War has brought. Soldiers saw their friends mowed down by machine guns. They suffered through the terrors of trench warfare. The effect on people's psyche is profound. You might say that the world remains shell-shocked. 
That phrase itself comes from World War I. And there are other words from that time that have also crept into the language and stayed there. Like if you're in um, a job and it's not going anywhere, you might say, well, I'm kind of stuck in the trenches. Or if it's raining outside, I'm going to put my trench coat on. That's Mitch Jakelson, professor of military history at Norwich University and a lead historian for the United States World War I Centennial Commission. He told us these little linguistic artifacts just go to show how thoroughly this conflict changed the world. It started in the summer of 1914. The heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire is assassinated. And then there's a sort of domino effect as various alliances bring more and more countries into conflict. And the next thing you know, the world is at war. The only alliance that's not in the war in 1914, when the guns start firing, is the United States. While the U.S. watches from across the Atlantic, the central powers, including Germany, begin to fight the allied powers, including Britain and France. And the allies at first think that the war is going to be quick and easy. Well, sure, everybody thinks that a war is going to be short. There was kind of this excitement in the air among British and French soldiers and the Germans of, okay, we're going to get into this war. We want to join up. We want to fight because this is going to be over and we're going to have to get it back to sort of the doldrums of life. When they start fighting, the war looks much the way they expected it would what they would call open warfare, where troops are charging each other and going across huge land masses. But it soon becomes clear that war itself has changed. The Germans are using machine guns, which can spray hundreds of bullets at the advancing enemy and shoot accurately from very far away. And it becomes this great struggle of men and machinery To protect themselves, the Allied forces have to dig into the ground, take cover in the trenches. And hope to God that a direct shell wasn't going to hit you and basically bury you alive. Those soldiers who thought they'd be home by Christmas are stuck in a nightmare of a war. It's not unusual if a soldier standing close to you, you watch them lose an arm, you watch them lose a leg maybe even their upper torso. And you think to yourself, is this ever going to end? 1914 turns into 1915 and 1916 and 1917. The Europeans are still fighting and the U.S. is still on the sidelines. President Woodrow Wilson has won re-election saying that he will not get involved in this war. But then in early 1917, the British bring him a telegram they've intercepted. The U.S. Army at this time is fighting an unsuccessful expedition against the Mexican revolutionary fighter Pancho Villa. And the telegram is from a German diplomat to the Mexican government, saying, If you want to declare war on the United States, we'll provide you with weapons and other resources. And it kind of ties... Wilson's hands in the sense of, he's got to do something. This is compounded by the fact that the Germans have recently sunk some U.S. merchant ships. And in April of 1917, the president asks Congress for a declaration of war. 
and gets close to unanimous consent. The United States is now an allied partner in the fight against Germany. But the reality is, the U.S. Army at this time isn't a major fighting force. Essentially, the U.S. comes into the conflict with very little to offer. In April of 1917, they have only about 120,000 enlisted men. Which is very pale compared to other countries. So the U.S. institutes a draft, and the ranks swell from 120,000 to 4 million by the end of the war. The man in charge of these inexperienced troops is General John J. Pershing. Pershing has been serving in Mexico as part of that U.S. expedition against Pancho Villa. He'd gone to West Point and was known as a good leader. He was smart. He was quiet. Uh, He was what we would call a micromanager today. He liked to have control. But he was also very understanding of other people, very empathetic. Perhaps especially now, because Pershing has recently suffered a personal tragedy. Back in 1915... He was actually in his camp on the uh, Mexican border in El Paso when a phone call came from a reporter from a newspaper. The reporter had heard about a terrible fire at the Pershing home in San Francisco. He called down to get verification, and who should answer the phone but Pershing himself? And the poor reporter had no idea he was speaking to Pershing, and this is the first that General Pershing heard of this. And once the reporter figures out who he's speaking to, he kind of backtracks and and Pershing says to him, nope, tell me what you know. And the reporter relays. Three of Pershing's four children had been killed, along with his beloved wife, Frankie. Frankie was really his entire life. She brought him out of his shell and Pershing gets on the first train from El Paso. He insists upon seeing the house where the fire is. He arranges for a funeral, and he's got to get on with his life. About two years later, the still grief-stricken General Pershing gets word from the President of the United States. He's been tapped to be the commander of the U.S. Army in this European war. Now, everybody knows that the American troops are unprepared. Training camps are set up in the U.S., and there's not enough equipment, there's not enough weapons. Soldiers are learning how to drill with wooden arms, literally wooden guns. So he's going to get, eventually, a bunch of troops who have no idea how to fight in war in general, but essentially a war that's now this modern warfare to include trenches, gas warfare, airplanes, machine guns, all of this technology that Americans are not used to. The Allies in Europe know that the American army is ill-prepared. And they propose that they could essentially fold the American troops into their own armies, train them up, and then have them fight under the French or British flag. But President Wilson and General Pershing both say no. It's a matter of honor to fight under their own flag. And Wilson also wants to make sure the U.S. has a seat at the negotiating table at the end of the war. After about a year, the American troops are finally ready enough to join the fight. They sail across the Atlantic as an independent American army. 
So you have young men and, of course, young women who are helping in terms of nursing and telephone operators. They're coming over to Europe and seeing a part of the world that they may have read about in some magazines and travel books, but had never seen before. And they get over there, and what do they see but shell-pock towns? beautiful cathedrals that they may have seen pictures of at one point, now completely destroyed, roads destroyed. And mostly they see women, women wearing black, women of all ages who had lost husbands, fathers, brothers, and sons. The American army will join this war on the Western Front. The Allies are trying to push the Germans out of occupied areas in northern France and Belgium. General Pershing's first battle is in the small town of Saint-Miel. It's occupied by German soldiers who are blocking supplies that the Allied troops need. The French and British commanders don't want Pershing to attack Saint-Miel. They have another plan that they think is better. But the general insists. And? It's a great victory for the Americans. It's a great morale booster. Pershing, he's touted in all the newspapers around the world as this great hero. But he knows within 10 days, they're going to have to fight a much larger battle that's going to ultimately include about 1.2 million American troops in this much larger, tougher front between the Meuse and the Argonne Forest. This is the big offensive that the French and British commanders had had in mind. And it's going to be much harder than Saint-Miel. It's very difficult terrain. There are lots of hills, lots of high ground. And German forces have been in this area since 1914. The German forces there are well defended, but the Allies need to drive them out. For this more difficult battle, Pershing's more experienced troops aren't on the front lines. They helped win that victory at Samiel, and now they're resting up. It's the green, untested troops who will be taking the lead. The night before the battle kicks off, Pershing gives his commanders a pep talk. Pershing is somebody that was like a rock of stone. You wouldn't know that he was nervous and he was uptight. In fact, he goes back to his, his command train, and he waits. And the battle starts off as it's intended with a long artillery barrage. The guns begin to fire around 2.30 a.m. The idea was the artillery is going to surprise the enemy and try and soften them up before the actual, what they call the jump off. The troops wait for a few hours while the artillery barrage does its worst. As the dawn approaches, they start to gather behind a white cloth line. And then, at around 5.30 in the morning, the commanders blow a whistle. The troops jump off, and the Meuse-Argonne offensive begins. By the time it's over, it will be the deadliest battle that the United States has ever seen. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The first goal of the Meuse-Argonne Offensive is to take over the high ground. German troops are perched on top of Montfaucon, Falcon Mountain. And General Pershing knows. Until he can eclipse the Germans from that high ground, where they can pretty much get almost a 360 viewpoint of the entire Meuse area, that battle's not going anywhere. The American troops are fighting all day, trying to move forward. Almost like the early battles of World War I and the battles of the Civil War, open warfare. That's what Pershing preaches. He doesn't want his troops behind the trenches. He wants them moving forward. And early on, they do quite well. The French and British commanders thought Pershing was making a mistake. They tried open warfare back in 1914 and saw massive casualties. But Pershing sticks to his plan. And his men do see massive casualties. The American troops who are trying to take over Montfaucon, they run into trouble. Many of them get snarled up in German barbed wire, which makes them easy targets for the German machine guns. And by nightfall, the attack is stalled. And without again taking Montfaucon and knocking the Germans off of that great observation post, the battle can't proceed. But by the next morning, the attacks in other areas have drawn some of the Germans away from Montfaucon. So when Pershing's troops try again, they're able to overwhelm the now smaller German force. It's an important win on day two. But... At this point, the Americans are slowed down a bit, and the element of surprise is gone. The Germans send in reinforcements. In the battle just turns into a slugfest. And slowly, in the days ahead, it just grinds to a halt. The weather is starting to turn really bad. It's rainy. It's starting to get chilly. And the Americans are running into major problems. The inexperienced Americans are flagging against the well-armed German defenses. To make matters worse, the disease known as the Spanish flu is beginning to spread through their ranks. Things are looking bleak. 
at the beginning of October, one American division gets into particular trouble, the 77th. The Statue of Liberty Division from New York. Their leader is a New York attorney named Charles Whittlesey. And since day one of the battle, they've been pushing through the Argonne Forest itself. The Germans are well defended in that forest. They've been there a while. They have large camps set up. One of those camps even has a soccer field. The 77th is supposed to have support as they push through this territory. But through a series of mistakes, they get separated from their allies. And they get trapped in a, in a valley within the forest. And they're basically surrounded on all sides by German troops. This division will become known in history as the Lost Battalion, even though they weren't a battalion, but rather a division. And they were never truly lost. They knew where they were. Everybody else knew where they were. It was just difficult to get to them. And as they're fighting and they're trapped in there, casualties are very high and major efforts are underway to rescue them. Airplanes are flying above, trying to drop supplies, food, medical supplies, ammunition. Some of it falls into German hands. The Germans are surrounding them, trying to get Whittlesey's men to surrender. They refuse. While all this is happening, Allied troops are also firing into this valley. They think they're hitting German troops, but really it's their own men. Whittlesey and his soldiers try to use pigeons to send a message back to their comrades. This was a common communication tactic during World War I. One of the more famous pigeons that is a part of the Lost Battalion story was named Shara Me, my love, who is sent out with a message. At first, she flies up in the wrong direction and perches in a tree. The officers are shouting at her to get going, and finally she does. They have no way of knowing if she reaches her destination, but soon after she leaves, the friendly fire does stop. Eventually, the Americans send in two other divisions to surround the Germans. One unit is near a railroad line. And there's a young, well, actually he's not young. There's a corporal um, who's 41, much older than some of the other soldiers by the name of Alvin York. And he and the few men that are left get into this major firefight with the German troops who are manning this machine gun nest protecting the railroad line. Eventually, York and his men overwhelm the Germans and capture more than 100 of them as prisoners of war. He'll get the Medal of Honor for his service and become known as a hero. This effort and others weaken the German forces to the point that, on the 8th of October, the Statue of Liberty Division is finally rescued. They're in rough condition. Of those 554 men that he started with, only 194 walk out of the woods that day. Overall, there are many, many casualties on the Meuse-Argonne front. Pershing's men are suffering, even his officers. Some of them are breaking down, not knowing how to lead their men, not knowing how to deal with the terrain. The other Allied countries are running their own offensives, but they're counting on the Americans in this strategically crucial area to push the enemy north, back into Germany. It's not going well. 
And by the end of October, the Allied commanders are starting to make noise that they're going to try and push President Wilson to basically sack General Pershing, which Wilson never would have done. But Pershing is really feeling the pressure at this point, and it's starting to, to take a mental toll on him. Jakobsen told us, at one point, Pershing is riding in the backseat of his car. He's on one of his trips to the front lines. And... He essentially has a nervous breakdown. And he was heard to say, oh, Frankie, oh, Frankie, meaning his his former wife, you know, how can I go on? It's a low, dark moment. But Pershing eventually comes to a solution. He has been commanding two parts of the American military. The AEF, which has to do with the big picture, the strategic efforts. And also the First Army, the actual troops under the AEF command fighting on the ground. That's too much for one person. So he has the smarts to relieve himself as First Army commander. He places another commander in charge, General Hunter Liggett. And Pershing's humility pays off. With Liggett's help, things begin to turn around. The flu is finally letting up, and the American troops have learned things by fighting on the ground that they couldn't have learned in training, like how to best surround the Germans in small groups and scare them from their machine gun stations. On November 1st, Liggett launches which would ultimately be the final push of the battle and the war. He gives the American Expeditionary Forces, First Army, the reinvigoration it needs, and it launches a major offensive, sending most of the divisions directly at the Germans, but this time refreshed with replacements, and they completely overwhelm the Germans. Despite the French and British commanders' doubts, Pershing and Liggett's open warfare approach, pushing the troops forward instead of hiding in the trenches, it ultimately breaks the German lines. By that final week of the battle, the Germans? They're being beaten badly. They're slowly being pushed back by an American army that's got more confidence than ever, is learning how to use their artillery, their weapons, including chemical weapons. It is only a matter of time before the Germans will be forced to surrender. They meet with the Allied commanders from France and Britain and agree to an armistice. Basically, it's a timeout. They would put down their guns and the fighting would stop. It goes into effect on the morning of November 11th, 1918, at exactly 11 a.m. local time. Up until then, the fighting is in full swing. The night before, the supreme commander of the Allied forces tells the other commanders, You will continue fighting up until 11 a.m. Because essentially, we don't trust the Germans. And if we stop fighting before 11 a.m., they may renege on the armistice. So you had casualties all the way up until 11 a.m. A private by the name of Henry Gunther is the last American to be killed in the war. He was a Baltimore native, and he was killed about two minutes before the armistice would take effect. Wow. In all, there are about 117,000 American casualties in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, more than any other battle in the war. 
Pershing feels the loss keenly. He's extremely sad about the loss of American life. But he is also proud. It's the battle that shows that the Americans were no longer on the sidelines. And his troops were instrumental in terms of not only sheer numbers, but in their contribution of defeating the Germans and bringing the war to an end. After the armistice, the warring parties negotiate the peace. The Germans take the brunt of the blame, which leads to tensions. French General Marshal Foch presciently says, this is not a peace treaty, it is an armistice for 20 years. It had to be disappointing for a number of these veterans that eventually we'd get back into war again. When World War II does break out, it's clear that war itself has changed. We look at the First World War as kind of the catapult to bringing at least the United States, but you could also say the world into the modern age of how war is being fought. Never again would we have the the so-called trench warfare, the static warfare that you see in the First World War. The Second World War would be much more fluid. And a lot of this is what we learned from the 47 days of the Meuse-Argonne. Between the two world wars, this battle is the subject of lectures and papers. American military schools use it as a teaching tool. It shows the way that constant pressure and sheer numbers can overwhelm an enemy. The American military draws from the lessons of the Meuse-Argonne when they attack on D-Day. They and their allies land on five beaches on the same day and keep up the attack for three months. And that battle, the Battle of Normandy, is decisive in the Allied victory. Decades later, in 1954, President Eisenhower signs a bill that makes Veterans Day a national holiday. And there are many veterans to celebrate, some who have survived not one, but two world wars. And although World War II has ended more recently, the date that becomes Veterans Day is November 11th, Armistice Day, a day when, after a horror of a battle and a nightmare of a war, the world briefly laid down its arms. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail that is at 212-351-0410. We love to hear from you. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. Special thanks today to our guest, Professor Mitch Jockelson, author of 47 Days, How Pershing's Warriors Came of Age to Defeat the German Army in World War I and the historical collections of the U.S. National Library of Medicine, which houses that letter we read at the top. History This Week is also produced by Ben Dickstein, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosado. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn, Jesse Katz, and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.
The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts.